Hey friends, listen, with uh, the Derek Chauvin trial starting up in next week and all that's gonna unfold alongside of that, we just wanted to make sure that you knew that we are gonna try our best to keep you apprised on latest developments as far as like ways that we can be as a people in solidarity with our neighbors, ways that we're gonna need people to speak up and stand with. And we're gonna do so through the tables page, our Facebook page, which you are watching this on right now, but also our table community group page, which is a private group where we as a community can um, share resources, have conversations, uh, if you're not a part of that, but you are part of the community, we would strongly encourage you to make that move tonight. Jump into the table community group page and somebody on the admin side will let you in and um, we'll be in this thing together. Hi everyone, I'm Debbie Manning, one of the pastors at the table and welcome. We are in the middle of Lent. That season we typically think of a 40 days where we are journeying to the cross and, and the resurrection. This time of reflection and, and preparation and repentance. And I'll tell you this Latin season has been just a little bit different for me. And that's because I've been in this study that I lead on Tuesdays. I'm written by an Orthodox Jew. She's a professor at Vanderbilt Divinity School, Dr. Amy Jill Levine. And what's so cool about the study is she's the, sort of this expert on um, the history of Judaism, the Hebrew texts, and the Gospels. And she has, even as an Orthodox Jew, she has this love of the Gospels and Jesus. And it's kind of given me this new view on things. And the theme of her study for the Lenten season, she's, we're doing the book um, Entering the Passion of Jesus, which is walking through the last week of Jesus's earthly life and all the stories associated with that. But her theme is about risk. And I haven't often thought about this season of Lent being one that calls us to step into risk. So it's been really, really interesting. So hey, as a side note, if you guys wanna join us Tuesdays at noon, please do that. We've got kind of a good crew going and it's been really, really engaging and interesting. But as uh, it would be this past week, the text we were studying happened to be the text for today's uh, message. And that text is the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. One that's familiar to a lot of us, right? And I have to tell you that Dr. Levine has kind of turned my world upside down, uh, made me think just a little bit differently about some of these stories that I felt like I knew and I understood the message. And tonight's is one of those. So I encourage people to maybe set aside what we've been taught about this story, um, that we might see it through new eyes, see it a little differently. Um, it's so rich and there's so much to it. And I have to also be honest in saying, um, I've struggled a little bit because um, the theologian, the scholars, the commentaries, there's just so many different views on this particular text. And to top it off, last night, as I'm kind of finishing up my message, I see on Facebook that Steve Weens, pastor at Genesis, puts out this text that was sort of convicting um, about this passage, because many people are preaching this out of the Revised Common Lectionary. And Margaret Keller, your comment on it was, I'm glad it's Debbie and not me. So from that moment on, I'm like re-looking through all my notes going, oh my gosh, is this gonna be okay? Um, and then I did, I literally put my head down on my desk and just prayed, okay God, just let it be the words you want it to be. And I had to let go of that. But here we are, it's Passover. Jesus is in Jerusalem with two plus million people there to celebrate this, uh, this time of uh, 
where they had been enslaved by Egypt and set free. That's what the Passover celebration is about. The crowds are huge. And because of that, Jerusalem, Judea, they're all under Roman, the Roman Empire, Roman control. So lots of Roman tr troops everywhere because they're thinking there might be some disturbances, some uh, things that they have to be watching out for. And it's in this very political, volatile setting that our story starts. Now, one thing to remember, we're, we're talking about the story out of the book of John. And this comes right out of the first sign in the beginning of his gospel where Jesus had turned water into wine at the wedding. Jesus travels to Jerusalem for the Passover, just like all the other pilgrims were, and he comes to the temple and he enters the temple and finds what you would expect to find during a pilgrimage. The vital trades are all in place, um, the necessary exchange of animals and monies and grains for the required sacrifices. The temple would have been a really noisy and crowded place. And I think it's important for us to keep that in mind because we think of a uh, temple as sort of quiet and holy, even like our churches can be sometimes. But nope, it was full of people, crowded, boisterous, all that. We're in John 2, 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to, Jesus, to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. All four Gospels include this account of Jesus' disruption at the temple. Now, the synoptic Gospels, and those are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, synoptic meaning kind of seeing the same, uh, a lot of their stories follow the same pattern, use the same language, um, and in this particular story, that's true. They're very similar. There's just a little bit of a variation. In the synoptic Gospels, this story comes toward the end of their Gospels. It's at the beginning of what we call Holy Week. It comes right on the heels of the triumphal entry. But in the book of John, like I referred to earlier, it comes at the beginning of his Gospel. And there's some big differences in what John reports. And one of the things that we've been learning from Dr. Levine in our study is that these differences in the Gospel stories aren't anything to, sh to cause us to doubt the stories. It actually makes the stories richer. And I think that's been a really beautiful thing to keep in mind as we go through this, that it's um, different writers from different perspectives speaking to different audiences with a, with a little bit of different message on the same story. So we're going to keep that in mind as, as we go through, because it gives us a fuller picture of the meaning and message of the text. So I'm going to pause here for a minute before we dive into what this is all about. 
And I wanted to talk just a little bit about the temple because the temple is so important to this story. The temple was this meeting place, right, for the God of Israel and God's people. And sacrifices were offerings that were given during religious festivals as well as kind of marking moments in people's life, like the birth of a child or uh, Thanksgiving for a harvest. And the temple was this holy place. It was a place where human life and the divine could meet. At least that was the intent. But in actuality, in Jesus' day, the temple wasn't primarily a place of spirituality, not even exclusively at all. The temple was the center of economic and political and social power in the life of Israel. The banking system was there. Um, Property was bought and sold. Military plans were made. Taxes were collected there. The temple was the center of um, Israel's life. And it's important to keep that in mind. You know, uh, I don't know, those who've been with us for a while will remember that back in 2015, Matt and I were able to take a group from the table, there's a group, like, what a crew, over to Israel and Palestine um, for this amazing trip with the Global Immersion Project, and it was life-changing. But we got to spend a lot of time in Jerusalem, and we visited the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, and right above that wall was the Temple Mount. And back then, I'm not sure what the rules are today, but they occasionally and kind of randomly would open it up for people to walk up to the Temple Mount. And we were lucky enough that the Israeli um, uh, defense folks opened it up and we walked up there. And you can see some of the pictures. It was just so amazing and overwhelming to picture life in the temple, what the temple must have been like when it actually stood there before it was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. And there's this picture, and you guys can see it here, and you see these beautiful arches that still stand, and that's the outer court where the Gentiles were. And I have this picture of three of the young women on the trip taking pictures of it. And I remember standing there being so overwhelmed because that's where Jesus supposedly turned the tables. And it was so cool to be in that space, knowing that story like we know that. But the temple in Jesus' day, it is actually hard to imagine. There's a picture up there of what it would have looked like. And the temple complex was huge. I mean, they say that it was like 12 soccer fields back to back. And King Herod the Great began the rebuild on this. And during Jesus' lifetime, it was still being, it was still under construction. And the temple had several courts that had that inner court where the holiest of holy resided. And the only person was the chief um, priest that got to even go in that space. And that was one time a year for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And then outside of that, there was um, the court of the, the next inner court was the court of the priests. Then it was the court of Israel, then the court of women. And then the outer court was the court of Gentiles where they could come and worship. But that was also the place where all the vendors hung out. I think it's just good for us to know, have that picture in our head as we move into this story. Now, I said earlier that I struggled a little bit, and what I've struggled a little bit this week as I've studied it is, what is this story really about? Like, what's the real message here? Why does it matter? Why does it matter to me? Why is it relevant to us as a church? And I want to, um, so I had mentioned Steve Weens earlier, and here's what he posted last night. Lectionary preachers. If you're planning to preach the gospel text this week where Jesus cleanses the temple, 
How are you planning to avoid the insufferable self-righteousness that assumes your tables aren't the ones that need to be overturned? That got me thinking, and that got me scrambling a little bit, because I think that's really important that we enter this text with humility as we try to figure out what it's all about. But if you were raised in the church, you probably learned something a lot, learned somewhere along the line that this uh, text was really about corruption. That people were not just selling animals, that they were hiking the prices up um, and cheating people. Now, I want to I pause and just say that Dr. Levine would say, actually, there wasn't a lot of evidence for that and that Jesus never said anything about it. And I just want to hold that out there because there's a lot of uh, preachers that have preached this sermon, a lot of scholars that would um, say the opposite of that. But I will say this, the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, they really help us down the road to that same conclusion. Because in those Gospels, Jesus borrows from the prophet Jeremiah on this particular story to accuse those of selling uh, in the market, selling in the temple, um, and accuse them of being a den of robbers. Or at least that's what we take it to mean, because we're going to look at this in just a little bit, and it might look a little different when we peel it back. So maybe, maybe Jesus raises a ruckus because uh, he thinks there's corruption and he's protesting that. But then again, Jesus' uh, command to sell the doves in the book of John looks a lot different than what happens in Mark and uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And instead of concern over the temple malpractices, Jesus orders that his father's house not be turned into a marketplace. Now, for the temple um, to survive, it has to function as this place of exchange where people can't um, sacrifice. And that's the problem, is that the priests, um, there's thought that the priests set up the money changers because they knew that everyone had to give an offering to God, that everyone had to do a tribute to Rome, that everyone had to pay a tax to the temple. And they knew that that was non-negotiable. And there's a lot that believe that that system was very, um, it exploited the need. I think that's maybe true too. That's another piece of what could be happening here. And what Jesus is calling for in this situation is to actually dismantle the system. But it brought to mind for me, like, the question, well, okay, so who's actually responsible for the system? Oh, it's the temple. It could be the temple because that dreadful institution is in cahoots with Rome. Well, I don't know. Jesus loved the temple. His followers continued to go to the temple afterwards. Oh yeah, it's the Romans. I bet it's all the Romans. Or maybe the priests. Because that Caiaphas, think about him. He's the head priest. Some call, uh, some say behind, between a rock and a, and a hard place because here's a guy who was under the rule of Roman Empire. He had to succumb to Pilate and the Roman government. At the same time, he had to hold up all the Jewish traditions and his whole job was to keep the peace. So maybe it was him because I think often we look at him as the uh, evildoer in this, in this um, story. And while all of the above is part of the story, it seems to me that all these things are more of a symptom of the problem, not the problem itself. It's, it's like the same way that the animals and uh, the merchants in the 
temple aren't the problem. They're just a symptom. And I think the symptom is about something that's far deeper and far more free, free, far reaching that's going on. I don't think the problem's with the temple. I think the problem's with the people. So the question we often ask, right, is what's behind the thing, behind the thing, behind the thing? What was Jesus so angry about? And that's what, frankly, has been hard for me to get at as I've been trying to study the scriptures this week. But I have thought, maybe, just maybe, it's that all those people in for Passover carried on with business as usual. Maybe Jesus went to the temple that day for one purpose, to throw out and overturn business as usual. Because isn't that kind of our story? When you look at the Israelites, when you look at all of Hebrew scriptures or the meta narrative of the entire scripture, isn't so much of it wandering away from God, coming back, wandering away from God, coming back. Isn't that our story? You're in my story. And I think there are times in our lives where the tables of our lives need to be overturned and the animals thrown out. Have you been there? Because I have. Have you ever felt like your life is on autopilot and you've just gone through your days, through the motions? You know you're there, but you haven't really shown up? That's business as usual. Do you ever start your day just as exhausted as you ended your day? Business as usual. Have you ever felt like you're just not yourself, that nothing seems right, that there's no enthusiasm or wonder or imagination? Business as usual. Have you ever felt so busy doing that you completely forget to actually be? To embrace the moment in front of you? To embrace whatever it is right in front of you? And it leaves you feeling like there's no depth or meaning? That's business as usual. And I think business as usual can happen anywhere. It can happen in our friendships and in our marriages and our parenting. It can happen in our work. It can happen in our church. And I think it happens all the time in being the church. I think uh, something that kind of uh, lends itself to maybe we might be on the right track with this a little bit is looking at this same story in the book of Mark. Mark 11, 15 through 17. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus says, But you have made it a den of robbers. So what's important here to what's going on is the context. And Jesus is quoting from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 7:11 has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight. Well, a den of robbers or a den of thieves is not a place where robbers rob. A den or a cave is a place where robbers go with all their loot to count it, and it's a safe place for them to be. 
it's a safe place. And if we look at the broader context, just the verse before and the verse after in Jeremiah, which Jesus was quoting, this ancient prophet, Jeremiah, he's condemning the people of his time. And this was like 500 years prior to this temple incident. It's right before the temple is destroyed by the Babylonians. And he's asking the people, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, making offering to Baal, go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by name, and say, we're safe, only to go back out there and do it all again. As Dr. Levine says, some people in Jeremiah's time and at the time of Jesus and today take divine mercy for granted and see worship as an opportunity to show off the new clothes, their new clothes, rather than to clothe the naked. And maybe Jesus really was condemning business as usual, living our life by doing what is wrong or I think even more so, failing to do what is right. But on Sundays, we walk back in those doors, right? And we worship together and we pray and we hear a, a message. And we shake hands and we put money in the offering box. But if we go back out and we're not changed, if we go back out and our faith doesn't move from here to action, then the church is a den of thieves. It's a cave, a safe place for those who aren't really repentant, for those who aren't really willing to set self aside to pick up their cross and follow Jesus. We talk a lot here at the table about being a safe space. I, th I think it's a good thing. We want to be a safe space for all to come and, and know that they're loved and that they belong. And the church should be a place for community, a place for strangers, a, a place for repentance. But if we aren't committing to practicing the ways of Jesus, owning our stuff, moving faith to action, then it is business as usual. Business as usual. And I think on top of this, we have to think about what gives rise to business as usual. Why is that so much our bent to step back into that kind of life? business as usual. And we can think of all sorts of things, fear and weariness and busyness and our desire for comfort and safety. I think there's a lot of reasons and a lot of ways that we fall into business as usual. But I think the thing that keeps coming up for me over and over again is forgetfulness. Business as usual is born out of forgetfulness. We forget that we really are the temple of God's spirit. We forget that all of creation is the residence of God. We forget that in whatever direction we turn, we see the face of God in what's in front of us or who's in front of us. And as soon as we forget those things about ourselves, about each other, about the world, life becomes business as usual. And so my question for us, what does business as usual look like for you? Because it's been something I've been pondering a lot. And quite frankly, um, there's been a lot of business as usual during this pandemic. So let's think about that. Let's take some time this week to think about what is business 
life as usual look like in your life? We are people, I think, that walk away, that drift. We forget, we get comfortable, we like safety. But it's our silence, it's turning a blind eye that scares me the most because I think that's not just business as usual in our country, I think it's business as usual in our churches. We claim, we try, we aspire to be people that practice the ways of Jesus. That's part of who we are at the table, right? Well, then we have to be reminded that throughout the rest of the Gospels, Jesus would be interrupting business as usual. The Samaritan woman at the well, business as usual meant that she belonged to some man. But then Jesus meets this woman at the well, and he recognizes her as the temple of God and interrupts business as usual. And how about the paralyzed man on the mat? 38 years of business as usual, and he meets Jesus, and Jesus says, pick up your mat and walk. And he did. Business as usual was interrupted. Lazarus raised from the dead. Jesus tells Martha, no more business as usual. And what about the 5,000 plus that show up hungry and empty? And hungry and empty people are business as usual. But Jesus changes that with two fish and five loaves of bread. Practicing the ways of Jesus. It sounds like we need to be people who disrupt business as usual. I think of Jesus' actions in this text coming from a place of righteousness. You could even call it holy anger. And there are times that business as usual, it's not only inappropriate, it's obscene. That's what Jesus was angry about. Something had to be done. And if we don't get angry when we see images of suffering children, or enraged when we see a police officer that's kneeling on the neck of a black man as he's slowly murdered, or when we look at the disparity in education and healthcare in our own city and we're not furious, or what about the white nationalists that stormed our capital, that destroyed things, that were hunting for people as hostages? And not only did people in this country, leaders, but the church excuse it, justify it, turn a blind eye to it. And if we aren't furious about the voter suppression that continues to go on today, the intentional acts and laws and lawsuits that are making it as difficult as possible for those on the margins, for those that are black and brown, for those that are poor, to actually vote, if that doesn't make us mad, fighting mad, then there's something wrong with us. The kind of righteous anger that Jesus calls us to, it's an anger that compels us to act. It compels us to fight for the common good of all people. In John's gospel, the um, body of Jesus is the new holy place. The word became flesh and lived among us. And G John writes that in the incarnation with the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, that God's dwelling place is with human beings as human being. I think that's why John put this at the beginning of his gospel, because they're tied together. 
The word became flesh so that the temple might become human. Jesus continues to overturn and throw out business as usual because the truth is, is that we still have the Samaritan woman at the well. And there's still lame people grounded by business as usual. Empty and hungry people are still a reality in our world. Poor, oppressed, marginalized, a reality of business as usual in our country and in our communities. Are we listening? And going back to where I started about this realization that Lent isn't just this time of reflection and repentance, but it's also a time of risk. Are we willing to risk what it takes to move our faith into action? I have two questions for you as I tie it up here. And the first one is, what does the temple of your life need today? And what tables in your life need to be overturned? What animals need to be driven out? Here's the beauty of this story. is that Jesus doesn't make us into something we're not. Jesus calls us back to something that we've always been. I think that's really beautiful. Well, I want to end it today with um, talking a little bit about John Lewis because I've been thinking a lot about John Lewis um, because of all that's going on with um, trying to dismantle the Voting Rights Act that he worked so hard on. And John Lewis, that legendary civil rights activist who died this past year in July, left a legacy for all of us, a legacy to oppose racism. Um, and that legacy is going to continue to live on for a long time. And I love the idea of this man that spent his entire life protecting and advancing the rights of black people in the United States. His risks were big. He was beaten, arrested as a freedom rider. He galvanized so many people alongside Martin Luther King Jr. as they marched on Washington. And he spent nearly four decades, four decades championing the cause of marginalized community in our United States Congress as a House of Representatives from Georgia. But I bring him up because I think he represents exactly what it means to disrupt business as usual. And I'm going to end with this quote that we're familiar with. Matt and I maybe even used it in this last year because it's such a good one. And this is John Lewis speaking atop the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama on March 1st, 2020. Get in good trouble, necessary trouble, and help redeem the soul of America. That's what interrupting business as usual looks like. Hey, great to be with you guys tonight. Um, can't wait till we can gather again. When you think about church, being disruptive and not just a preservation of the status quo, in, in very few places do we see that more clearly than at the Last Supper, where Jesus is leading these guys that he has led for years now. And they get to the dinner table, not recognizing that this dinner would be one of their last ones together. Jesus looks the fellas in the room in their eyes and he says, this is it. My time has come. The hour is up. 
And he picks up the piece of bread that was sitting in the middle of the table and he says, this is my body and it is broken for you. Whenever you eat this bread, remember me. In the same way, he reached for the cup that was filled with the wine and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. When you drink from this cup, remember me. And so we do that. We take on that disruptive practice together here at the table by partaking in the elements of the bread and the cup every week. And so if you are with somebody, now is the time for you to say the following words to them. But if you are by yourself, allow me to offer this to you. This is the body of Christ, and it is broken for you. And this is the blood of Christ, and it is shed for you. When we do this every week, we follow it up together by saying the Lord's Prayer. So from wherever you are, join me in praying the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.